You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 37 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And on this week's show, we've got the UK's leading basketball journalist, Mark Woods. Mark has been covering the game for the almost three decades um, and has been a personal mentor and inspiration to me in many ways over the years. Uh, when I first got into the game, covering the game in 2009, 2010, uh, he was one of the few journalists that had a sort of online presence. So I fired many questions at him over the years and he's helped me with many, many things. Um, you know, I don't have any sort of formal um, journalism training and I... I, don't, I still don't class myself as a journalism a journalist. Sorry, um, I've kind of fallen into this, and uh, as a result, I've had a lot of things to learn over the years. Pretty much uh, by messing up as I go, um, and getting called out on certain things, uh, learning about simple things like right of reply, uh, learning at, learning about um, what I can and can't publish when it comes to things that I could potentially be sued for. Um, and a lot of the time, before I do that, I end up messaging Mark and just trying to find out. Um, what I can and can't do and kind of what the general protocol is. So he's been a massive, massive help for me. Uh, that's why I thought it'd be good to, to get him on the show, um, not only uh, to provide his you know, really good insight on British basketball over the years and kind of what he's seen and heard, um, but also from a media coverage standpoint, you know, what clubs can be doing better, what the federations could be doing better to help media coverage, um, to help grow the sport, because I think we'd all agree it's one of the things that's severely lacking and it's held back the game uh, over the years, you know, without the eyeballs on it, uh, it's very hard to get the sponsorship. Without the sponsorship, you don't have the money. Without the money, you're very limited to the things that you can do. Um, so media is a massive, massive piece of the puzzle. Anyway. Have a listen. Uh, as always, I would love your feedback, any thoughts, comments, critiques. Uh, you can reach out to me uh, on my email address, sam at hoopsfix.com, or you can reach me on all the social media profiles at hoopsfix. Uh, Mark is also on all the social media um, profiles. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Mark Britball. Um, so I'm sure he'll be accommodating if you want to reach out to him. Um, if you've got a few seconds, please give us an iTunes rating and review. Uh, it does help us grow far and wide, which is one of the reasons we're doing this. Uh, we do want to uh, help spread the word of British basketball and grow the audience uh, to as big as physically possible. Anyway, that's enough from me. Uh, here is this week's show with me and Mark Woods. All right, we're honoured to be here this week with uh, one of the UK's most uh, famous, well-known British basketball journalists, uh, Mark Woods. Mark, welcome to the show. Uh, welcome, Sam. I, 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 thank you for that introduction. I, I, I'm not sure famous, infamous possibly, um, <laughs> famous only in my own bedroom, but uh, there you go. Thank you for having me today. So, uh, like I was saying just before we started recording, um, I feel like this could potentially be very interesting for me to, to kind of dig into the weeds a little bit uh, in terms of your history, your background, things that I don't know, uh, even though, you know, we've had a relationship for, for a number of number of years now. Um, the place I'd like to start is kind of uh, where it started for you. I mean, <clears throat> from from what I can gather with the limited research I've done, uh, you've been sort of uh, in the journalism game since around 1990. Um, so can you talk about your background, how you got into it and why you first got into it? I guess in basketball and journalism for me goes goes back, as you said, to the early 90s when, when I was a student and I was just sort of freelancing a little bit on student basketball and, you know, getting the odd, you know, 20, 30 words. It was that small into the, you know, the Daily Telegraph and some of the local papers in Dundee where I, where I went to university and I guess back then it wasn't so much a, a career option. It wasn't necessarily something I was thinking about when I was at university. For me, it really developed when I went to 
a Newcastle Eagles against London Towers game. Um, it was a Friday night down at the what is now the Metro FM Arena, and I, I was I'd obviously watched the BBL on TV growing up. Uh, I, I followed it a little bit as well, but I uh, I just thought, well, I want to know more about this. I, and you know, if I looked in the newspapers, then you know, most of them being national newspapers had a basketball correspondent you could read about the game, but not in any huge detail. And it was coincidentally at the time the internet was starting to take off and you know, you had magazines then like like slam dunk was the basketball publication at that time but it, again it's it was a lot of it was nba dominated and yeah and i thought then well I, I was experimenting a little with with websites at that point when there really wasn't that many of them and it was still quite uncommon to have an email address I, and i thought well could I do something here? You know, what, what, how would you go about it? And I started a, a website then called Britball. It was, you know, it just was in early 1996. Um, and again, probably within you know, a, a couple of weeks, there was probably two people reading it. Um, <laughs> and I have to thank the legend that is Freddie Morrison, who, who many people know as having presented, you know, on the BBC and, and, and is very sort of commonly known around London and Brixton, especially, um, who gave it a mention in a slam dunk column. And suddenly then it started to get uh, develop a little a, a bit of a life of its own. You know, people started to read it. I started to expand the coverage of right across the top leagues of Scotland, of Ireland, of, of, of the NBL. Um, and then, it, you know, for me, it sort of developed from then. And then coincidentally, and uh, that, that you know, a couple of years later, when I was writing a little bit more for, for newspapers, um, Edinburgh got a franchise in the BBL, which is where I live. Um, so therefore, on a day-to-day basis, I was covering a team for newspapers. Uh, so from then, from having those two things together and having sort of easy access to the, to, to the league and, and to players, that, that really took off. And for me, it, you know, it's become a, a 20-year labour and a labour of love at times. Yeah, I was, you know, like uh, if people that follow you on Twitter and everywhere else can kind of see that you, you also cover other sports, but it seems like, you know, I would gather, and correct me if I'm wrong, that basketball is kind of your, your biggest passion. Um, what is it about basketball in particular? Like, why basketball? Did you used to play yourself? Kind of, what's your background with the sport? Well, I would, I would hesitate to say I, I still play in some form or another for the, the mighty basketeers every every week in Edinburgh. But, <laughs> um, yeah, it was the sport that I, I grew up playing. I grew, I grew up as an athlete as well, and I, I was a competitive athlete for, for when I was younger. Um, but basketball is always a sport I, I've just enjoyed, and it's a sport that I, I have a real passion for. And it's a sport also that, you know, like you have uh, – I have frustrations about and you know that I that you look at the immense potential that basketball has in this country and obviously I'm very fortunate that I get to go overseas to watch the game to cover the game not just in the states but in mainland Europe as well and you sort of see that you know the the politics of the sport you see the characters of the sport you get to know people as well and you know within the sport all of that together you know makes it you know a fascinating topic for me just from a journalistic point of view as well but from a personal point of view it, it is the sport i play and I, and I really adore and um that i really really like to write about on the journalism side of things um how would you describe your job and your responsibility responsibility as a journalist when you're covering the game like how do you kind of approach it how do you see um yeah your role as a british basketball journalist i think it's to be there as a as an a honest commentator and, and reporter on, on the sport i mean obviously because i'm immersed in it day to day i you know i i get to know what's going on I'm, you know I, I like to think i'm pretty across you know the the, the in, inside details it's not just the sort of outside 
superficial level of the sport in terms of you know games or or, or whatever and i think to to an extent over the years what i've tried to do and i hope of 99 percent of the time i've succeeded in that is is to be honest about it and reflect back not just what i think of this but but more importantly what people within the sport are saying and um, there there are various opinions out there you want to let other people have their voices you want to to an extent you want to give a wider view into the sport to those on the outside that they can get themselves that's really what journalism is, is about you know i i have a i have an inside track there People want to know information. People are interested in who the players are, who the characters are, you know, who, who, what a coach thinks, uh, what an administrator is doing, what the strategy behind the strategy is. And I think, you know, for a sport like basketball specifically that doesn't get that mainstream coverage, it's not like football. You can pick up the paper and you can see 10 great voices and 10 great newspapers in a given day opening up that, that door for you. You know, for a niche sport like basketball, when, there aren't that many people, let's be honest about it, who, who, who write about the sport in any great detail. You know, the aim is there to, to provide those insights that people otherwise wouldn't have. You kind of, uh, you nailed it there exactly with the with the whole lack of media coverage thing um, that is, you know, whenever anyone speaks about, uh, you know, why British basketball hasn't reached its potential, why things aren't as good as, as they could be, um, you know, media coverage is something that, that is always, always spoken about. Um, you know, in your time covering the sport, what's your assessment of the situation? Like, why is there a lack of media coverage? You know, why aren't there more journalists uh, like you doing the work that you do? It's visibility. I mean, purely it comes down to the visibility of basketball on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, when I started going to finals back in, I think it was about 1996, 97, every national newspaper had a correspondent there. So you had, you know, you had not huge coverage, but coverage of of the bbl on a on a daily basis of international basketball but that's because basketball then was on sky sports on a saturday night it was you know hyped up to the max it you know it was much more prominent now you have a sport that's not really on you know major channels the bbc deal is helpful but it's not it doesn't put basketball front and center in the way that primetime and sky sports did and um, the clubs aren't all playing in big arenas, which creates a certain momentum of its own. And so therefore, you know, newspapers quite rightly look at it and say, well, you know, this isn't something that, that we need to devote resources to. And of course, resources in newspapers are dropping all the time. The media industry is not in a healthy place. So they're quite naturally focusing their expenditure on the areas that drive readers and particularly traffic. And again, if, if you were the editor or the sports editor of The Guardian, Owen Gibson, and you ran a basketball story about British basketball and you were getting millions of hits on that and you ran another one that was getting millions of hits. Yeah, sure. Then you would go, I'll invest in that. The truth is now newspapers because of websites are able to very much look of where's the traffic coming from? What's popular? What do people want to read? And they're servicing that. And sadly, basketball is not as highly in demand as other sports. Do you think that that is a very um, sort of chicken egg situation where you know it's not going to become in demand until there is the visibility, but at the same time it's not going to have the visibility until until the media starts covering it? Like how how can that be tackled? I think a success is really good. It will be the game changer if, and particularly with the Great Britain teams. Yeah, the league itself is growing organically. I think it is growing. That's a positive. We haven't always been able to say that, particularly over the last decade. But I think it will come down to Great Britain teams. It will be, you know, are we seen as a basketball nation? Are we seen as a country that is interested in this sport? We look at the survey that came out last week. I think it was conducted by YouGov where it listed sports which 
the UK or the population of the UK found most interesting and most boring. And basketball, as far as I recall, was third on the list of least interesting after American football and golf. So there, there's a cultural gap there in this country that that isn't necessarily you know, overwhelming behind the sport. And you and I, as, as huge fans of basketball, can sit here and say, you know, we could watch this, maybe not 24-7, but certainly quite a lot. You know, we enjoy it. You know, we understand the intricacies of it all. And it's not just that up and down, you score, I score, you score, I score. But ultimately, the, the public at large, I don't think, sees that. And I think sometimes when you're inside a sport, you, you forget that they're, not everyone is, is quite as ingrained to this as you are. And until basketball widens that base and you know, maybe does a better job of, of actually promoting the sport for itself, then your media coverage, I don't think, is going to grow that much. Yeah, I do always say that uh, kind of all of us that are into British basketball are very much in the bubble of it. You know, you follow all the British basketball accounts, so you log into Twitter and then all you see is British basketball. So you think everyone's talking about it. But of course, there's a, a significant selection bias in there with the people that you're actually, um, that you're actually, that you're actually following. Um, in terms of the, the cultural element that you spoke about there, uh, you know, when I look at when people talk about sort of the BBL when it was in its heyday and, you know, there was lots of people going to games and then, um, and then of course, then it kind of lulled and stuff. And, and now when we're talking about growing the game, uh, the culture side of things is always spoken about as in, um, you know, there just isn't a basketball culture here. Uh, it's not it's not part of the, the British sporting history or, or culture. But back then it kind of seemed to be like, um, so what do you think it was that's different what do you think it is that's changed uh between then where you know you had newspapers having dedicated columnists um you know tv stations main uh, mainstream channels covering the game uh, compared to now i think with it's comparing apples and oranges really if you go back to the era where the giants were playing in front of eighteen thousand at manchester arena or sh- sharks were playing in front of similar numbers at, at, at sheffield arena you know it, it was very much hype then but the substance was very minimal and you know tickets were being given away you know, there was there was a lot of money spent on pushing basketball like there you know money that you know, ultimately was slightly frivolous and then when that money got pulled really there wasn't a lot left behind at the end of that it you know the, the sort of the, the foundations were, were weren't really particularly strong so you know was basketball more prominent was it bigger than yeah but in reality it didn't it didn't really mean anything because it was effectively bought we were paying for that once they stopped paying it went away so you know now there's there's almost i think a more interesting story to tell and a more interesting narrative for basketball as a whole because if you take it from the bbl point of view yeah, there's no doubt it's not as 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 big a, a big a deal and as big a spectacle as it was then. But yeah, you know, the, you, there's a lot more effort going into this. It's much more domestic based. The people who own it have an interest in it. It's not just some big corporation that sees this as as a way to possibly make a buck. And I think added to that, you have what basketball does at grassroots level. I mean, then it, it, it really wasn't ingrained in the way that it is now. I mean, now it's yeah you know, by by some metrics the second or third most played sport amongst kids i think you know amongst adults that drops off significantly but i think that is slowly starting to change as well you think you look at some of the social issues that it addresses and spots some of the schemes that are up and running particularly in in london um it has a story right now which is really positive but again does that does that sell to the public i mean that's something that needs to there is a narrative there that's lacking for basketball in the moment and that's i think a symptom of the fact we have so many competing voices in this country rather than one voice and until we sort that out then it limits the way that basketball can grow 
if you were in charge of uh, the game and um, you wanted to put together uh, kind of a strategy to help grow the media coverage um, of the sport, what are the things uh, that you would do? Like, what have been, you know, I know that we've spoken multiple times over the years of frustrations trying to cover the game and things that maybe aren't being provided or not being done on the side of the of the organisations that are um, uh, providing access to media. Kind of, um, yeah, in terms of, like, if you're, in, if you're in control, the things that you would advise or want to see uh, leagues, federations, teams um, do to help aid with the media coverage of the game, uh, what, would th- what would those be? It has to be that single voice. You know, we haven't, as from top to bottom in this country, got a single coherent message that says this is British basketball. This is what we do. This is what we do well. And this is why you should follow, watch, support, sponsor, talk about us. That's never really been there, not any time since I've been involved in it. And, of course, you throw the NBA in the mix into that to an extent as well. And I think, you know, there is a, a, a great tale i think to be told about about this sport it it is not perfect i mean we all know that is very far from perfect but there are good things happening there are good things that it accomplishes and you know we don't take the opportunity to sell that but once you sell you know sell a sport from a media point of view it helps to get the sponsors and it helps to get the backers and the investors uh and all the other sort of people who can 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 come forth and and make a contribution you know it, it it may not it will never be the premier league but there are certain things there that can be attractive to to people with money on the outside, whether it's people buying a ticket or it's people coming forward to put their names on the Great Britain jerseys, etc. So, you know, for me, a lot of the things that you can do aren't about cash. I mean, we talk about the lack of budget, the lack of finances that British Basketball Federation, the national governing bodies, the league have. It's not for me about money. It's about doing things well, doing things coherently and actually going out there and making an effort. I mean, British basketball doesn't go out and sell itself proactively. It, it, when it gets coverage, it tends to be that someone's come to them. You know, that's, that's something you can't do. You know, that this is a crowded market. Every sport wants their slice of the pie, whether it's football or back down to volleyball or everything in between. People are out there fighting to get noticed. And if you're not fighting in that space, then frankly, you're outside. What do you think needs to be done uh, to kind of to fight that battle? Uh, like, is it, you know, telling the players narratives and stories better? Uh, is it, I don't know, providing more media access around training camps and stuff? Is it something else completely? Um, like if, you know, if, if you were if you were put in charge as the head of PR of, of GB or the BBF, um, what would kind of be your priorities uh, moving forward? Well, I mean, you put that job description, I think, you know, there needs to be at some point an investment in someone who is running communications for the BBF, for the BBL, for the WBBL, for, and has oversight of the national government bodies. It needs to be, everyone needs to be brought into that tent. I think with, in, in terms of, you talk about access to players, there is plenty of access compared to most sports. You know, you know, we, we're, we're quite lucky. We can, you know, BBL teams, WBBL teams, open their doors on a weekly basis. The GB teams, despite the occasional grumble, we, we can speak to players. It's not, that's not really an issue. It, it is that proactivity. It's about looking at someone who's got a great story and actually going to the guardian or the sun or whoever and saying, look, how about this? You know, this, this is a guy who's got something interesting to tell. It's different. It's, you know, it's quirky. No one else knows about it. And with that just never happens. And, you know, if you look at their homegrown players, I mean, 
yes, we had that period ahead of the Olympics where people were falling over themselves to speak to Luol Deng. But Luol's gone. That era's gone. There isn't the hook of, of an, a home Olympic Games. So you know, now we need to find those those new characters that we had. I mean, who's ever read about Andrew Lawrence or Miles Hessen in a, in a national newspaper or seen you know, a feature about them on the, on the, on the BBC? You know, we, we have people who are doing really impressive things. Joe Leadham, one of the most chronically overlooked sportswomen that, that the UK's produced over the past decade, doing incredible work at a credibly high level but virtually anonymous even in her hometown, I'm sure. So, you know, f- there are opportunities there. There are selling points for British basketball. But unless someone is, is taking those forward and pushing them out there, the sport will never benefit from it. I was going to say that kind of, um, you're in a unique position uh, doing what you do because, of course, you, you hear it from the side of the big the big media publications that everyone's targeting and everyone wants the, cover- the coverage in. Um you know, how much of a hard sell do you find British basketball to be? And, you know, for you as a as a freelancer, I'd be interested to find out, um, is it them, like, let's say the likes of ESPN or a big uh, major newspaper, do they come to you and say, oh, you know, we've got some space and we want, we're interested in a basketball story? Or is it more you're proactively being like, oh, I've got access to this player, I've got access to this team, you know, this is a good story or a good angle, and then you go and pitch it to the editor and, and need to get approval from them for your ideas rather than the other way around? It's it's almost always proactively me going to a paper and you know you mentioned ESPN that's slightly different because culturally they have more of an interest in basketball even on this side of the pond, um, but yeah I I can recall many conversations with with national newspaper editors where you know I've said to them here's the story about basketball and they've gone oh, our readers just aren't interested in that and that's it's that simple it's end of discussion there, otherwise you're trying to to find a hook you're trying to find something that that breaks through so. Yeah, you know, personally, writing you know for the eye paper uh, on a more national basis, you know, therefore the the editor is very amenable to new tales. But again, it's not going to be every day, and you know, most newspapers, you know, just you know, again they look at their metrics, they look at what the readers want, and that is is football. And look at the Sun or look at the Daily Mirror, whatever. You know, if if it's a twenty four page sports section 21 pages will be football two pages will be racing and one page is there for everything else and that's standard on a daily basis and therefore if you're trying to get a slice of that one page as a freelancer going to an editor you know the odds are not stacked in your favor at the very outset is that partly why you've always kind of had your your own thing um you know whether it's britball or you know mvp now um so that if there's a situation where you have a story that you want to publish and you can't get the the big sort of uh, publications to bite. You can then publish it yourself and still put it out there. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it provides an outline precedent from a personal basis. To if you know if there's something that I want to say, I have a voice that might just says something about my ego. <laughs> but the the I think it also provides another outlet. And you know, I think there are interesting tales out there. Um, on a personal basis when you're talking to a player and you know, you the reality is that you know that it will never reach the pages of a newspaper but you think you know there's something that's interesting to write about um i don't always have the time that's the reality of it like like everyone else i've got to pay the bills with the stuff that that, that earns money and that's my newspaper work yeah. but you know, again it provides a, another opportunity and another forum there to 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 look at british basketball to, to, to tell some of the tales that are in there um and hopefully people enjoy that in terms of the economics of, of being a, a British basketball journalist, do you think that you could earn a full-time living without covering the other sports um, just off basketball? No. 
No, no, absolutely not. And I think to an extent, that's that's always a question I, I get asked when people are maybe just different now in the age of Twitter where people used to be surprised that I wrote in anything else simply because all they knew me from was in basketball. And, I, you know, the answer has always been, well, I would be a very poor man yeah. if I ever did basketball. It's just it's just not realistic. I mean, there's just not enough work out there. You know, there there's a few people, I guess, that are working for maybe for FIBA's website or, you know, some of the, the sort of bigger governing bodies or whatever. Um that may be able to do it full time, but generally speaking, it's just not a sport that, that has enough budget directed towards it for anyone to make a living off. Have you seen any progress in that department uh over the years or do you think that's actually going backwards? Oh, it's gone backwards, no doubt about it. I mean, even if you look at local newspapers in this country, I mean, recently, say, the Plymouth Herald, for example, cut back on their, their coverage of the Raiders. They always had a dedicated person on that they no longer have. And yeah, and even with, you know, if I look up and down the country, and I would say I see more of the, 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 the local papers that have BBL teams that I might read from time to time, they don't have the dedicated people that they used to. And, you know, obviously that's reflected at national newspaper level where, there's not really any paper that has someone who even covers basketball on a, in a semi-regular basis. So, no, I think media coverage is is regressing. But again, the 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 internet offers opportunity there, and it's not just not just for someone running a website like URI. It's you know for for teams, it's for leagues, it's for governing bodies. You know they have their own space now to be able to put to get their own stories out there. It might not be as valuable in a way that having it in a national paper or on TV, but the opportunity is still there. Is there, I mean, like over the years, there's been multiple times where, you know, I've, and I kind of, I spoke about this recently where like, I feel like I've got this big story that loads of people are going to care about. And it's, you know, it's like, I'm really excited to publish it or whatever. And then you, you get it online and just no one cares. And there's just crickets. Um, you know, have you, have you found that's the case sometimes with anything that you've, uh, any stories that you've been particularly excited about uh, getting out there? Um, and kind of how, <coughs> mentally, kind of how do, how do you overcome uh, the potential uh, sort of feeling of, of being demoralized? If you put all this time and effort into something, you spend a lot of time uh, trying to gather the information and get it right and whatever else, and then you put it out there and, and actually no one cares. Or if it was a if it was the same story, but the football, rugby, cricket equivalent or whatever it might be, it would have blown up and been, been all over the place. Um, yeah, how do you think about that? I think that's just the reality. I think <clears throat> I think I've had twenty years of accepting that that's the way it's going to go. And yeah, the, the truth is, if if there is an interesting enough story and it's a big enough story, it will still make it out there. That's and that's I suppose the exciting thing about it. And you know, it's you know, I maybe sometimes I've surprised myself over the years when you know a newspaper's gone, yeah, actually we we'll, we will take that. But again, it's yeah, I suppose if if you're spending time and, and effort on something, yeah, on a personal basis, you always want the gratification, at least that people are reading it, they're listening to it, whether they agree with you or disagree with you, if it's a if it's an opinion type piece, or yeah, if it's someone that they they like to read about, or whatever. That's you know, it's nice to have that. Uh, but again, you know, it's 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 what you challenge yourself to do on a daily basis, or you know, or how you view how you can evaluate your own work, or how you know maybe other people close to you evaluate your work. And if you're operating in a very small space, you know, sometimes that's that's all you get, and that's what you've got to take. Yeah. Um, on the subject of. Uh sort of opinion pieces or or even uh, more controversial uh, pieces where you're you're tackling um, tough topics that potentially are going to you know upset some people you know one of the things that I've I've personally always struggled with is is asking the tough questions um, and then publishing stuff that I feel like there's going to be blowback from certain people from um, or whatever else and it's something that you've always been uh, yeah well very very good at and and 
and seemingly comfortable with. I, I'd be interested to find out kind of how how you approach um, those particular stories, you know, especially if, if you have personal relationships involved, um, you know, how you deal with pub- publishing it and, and whether or not at times you will hold things back uh, because of the fact that uh, it's going to fracture a relationship that you have with someone or do you always just go for the story? You like to think that you always go for the story. And that's, yeah, if you're, if you're being realistic, that's what you like to think that you go for. The reality is subconsciously or consciously, you know, you do take into account relationships. You do take into account the impact that it's going to have when you go for something. You know, most of the time, yeah, you're, you're, you're publishing it as you're calling it, as you see it, and you go with it. And, you know, if you're doing this job well, you will always fall out with people or have... You know, disagreements with people or people who would rather that you hadn't written what you had or that people will disagree with the premise that you've taken that that's the nature of the job it's you, you have to be tough on it i think the question you ask is are you being fair are you being accurate and i think as long as as long as you're confident that you do that then i think you you have to write or talk about the things that are going on and i think one of the problems that that British basketball has had is that you know you have a sort of wave of of, of cheerleading of you know people that sort of sit in the sidelines and say everything's great isn't this amazing mm-hmm. you know we, we shouldn't write anything that's negative or we shouldn't tweet anything that's that's considered you know critical of the sport you can't do that that doesn't help the sport you know, if you're if if one of the things that journalism does is hold up a mirror to any subject and say look this is what's going on well you know again sometimes if you if you if you read about the thoughts of other people that you're seeing a different view both views could be equally valid both of them could be equally nonsensical but i think journalism in a way can help sports get better and you know you know that's you know that's fundamentally there if you're there saying that these are issues or you know this is a problem or you know this person's doing something wrong or this or people are thinking this then I don't see that there's negativity in that. But yeah, certainly, you know that at some point, people aren't going to like what you write, aren't going to necessarily agree with you. But hopefully, most of the time, you agree to disagree, you discuss it afterwards if you need to, and you move on. Are there any particular stories um, that you've published over the years that you're proud of uh, for potentially um, being a catalyst for change um, and helping improve things for the better within British basketball? I think I think the story that I'm most proud of, and I, I say this probably across all my, you know the sports that I cover, was the the story where there was the potential takeover by the legendary Naismith B-Ball UK grouping of 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 the British basketball franchise, and you know again that was that was a story that took a lot of work on, and and for possibly little reward to you know it, to an extent, but you know the fact is you know uncovering the background to it of uncovering exactly you know the relationships involved the fact that the chief executive of of basketball england was actually that you know the company was based at his house you know you know the the incredible conflict of interest that that was involved in that you know the people who were coming in and trying to you know make a case for doing one thing but actually operating on both sides of the fence in terms of deciding what that that the outcome of that would be so i think that it felt like that was important because whether or not you believe that this group could change British basketball for the better, the way that they went about it was incredibly sort of, you know, duplicitous. And you know, I had a lot of time spent 
you know really digging in going into companies house you know to find out registration details talking to people in in america getting the, the you know the the sort of inside look at it from those people involved in it and it took you know months of work on that um and at the end of the outcome of it, i think in some way it contributed to the, the thing falling apart but i think that was important because if that if that hadn't come out and hadn't been exposed to an extent you know, we, what sort of place would British basketball have been in? No, I, I obviously I wasn't the only person involved in that. You know, whether it would have gone ahead or not, I don't know. But I think it felt at the time like I had to get that right and I had to put the effort in, even though financially it probably wasn't you know, necessarily worth the time that I put in. But I think it was important to go and do it and do it very well. You know, that's a, a kind of one of the many controversies that... Um the federations have been involved with over the years and has got a lot of criticism for uh you know and uh, you you published this piece this morning talking about the need for the uni- unification uh of the sport and kind of ever since uh the bbf has come around there's been all this political stuff going on between the home nations um and that body and uh and kind of a fight for control um you know how much do you think that side of things the political side of things uh has held back the sport and kind of what, um, how would you describe the situation as it is at the moment? I'll start with the second point. The situation's not good. And in, in a way, you can clarify that or, or sort of, you know, put that in context and the fact that it's probably better than it's ever been. And those two things might seem a conflict, but I suppose it illustrates just how far apart all these sides were when this process started, you know, what is it, back in the mid, mid-2000s to, to where we are now. I think we've talked already about voices. There are too many voices in the room right now, all shouting over one another. You talk about, you know, the commonality of purpose. You know, the funding from Sport England towards British Basketball Federation is gone. So that was one million over three years. So they've had to do a deal to to basically pull money together to allow Great Britain's youth teams to compete this summer. That was done within you know a couple of weeks. You know that's from finding out when the money was going to go to, to the the time when the deadline was for the draw. You know that shouldn't be happening. You talk about the the structure of 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 the BBF. The BBF is supposed to be the supreme body in, of basketball in this country. That's what everyone signed up to. But underneath that, particularly basketball England, particularly at a management level is not buying into that. In, in a sense, they're almost working against that, and that holds things back because it stops the governing bodies presenting a case to for for funding you know, which is hard to get if they look at this and sense sense the fact that this isn't a sport that hasn't got its act together having been given so many chances to get its act together they're not going to invest in it if you look at sponsors if i if i'm looking there and saying could if i'm going to invest in your sport and i want to return or not could you deliver upon that and i look at the way that your sport's structured and the way that different people are involved in it I would have no confidence I would I would get any value for the money I put into it. So I think from every level, if you're a sport that's that wants to be considered serious and useful and you know just just professional, I suppose, in a way, you have to have a structure in which everyone buys into their place, who contributes positively. And who really will pull together, you know, particularly if, if there are times of difficulty. And now, yes, people have signed up to it. And there are there are good things happening within that. And, you know, people are, are, are have a more of an appreciation of the fact that this has to effectively be one team working together. 
But yeah, but if you scratch below the surface, there are still too many places where people are pulling apart. Do you feel like, uh, I think, well, I, you know, I think part of the problem is having an almost entirely separate BBF as opposed to making it made up of the home nation so that, you know, rather than having a separate CEO, uh, you know, that, that kind of leads the BBF and then you've got three different CEOs of the home nations, you kind of, they all have a, I don't know, equal partnership share. You've got sort of three kind of co-CEOs and then it's like, well, then it, it kind of sees them as uh, sort of one unit rather than, uh, <coughs> you know, what, as what's been said, you know, multiple times over years, kind of like us versus them, and it's it's this kind of a territorial battle. Do you think that would help at all? Or do you think the same same uh, problems would persist? There was a proposal recently, which I think was eminently sensible, in that you would have much more of a, a, a sensible structure, and it would have involved the BBF being strengthened at the top, so you know that it would have taken on more of the functions that at the minute are shared by the home nations it would or, or, or certainly coordinated those functions much better and then within the national governing bodies instead of ceos you would have had coos chief operating officers so people who were there to run the place but not necessarily sort of be be contradictory or, or run across they would have taken their direction from the bbf now my understanding is that's that idea has been parked for the time being primarily because of of an opposition or obstructiveness from from within england but I think it has to come back. And the reason is money. We, we don't have much of it. Uh, UK sport is not funding basketball, certainly at least until 2020, when the, when the review comes of, of, of how they fund sports in this country. Sport England is putting no money into the BBF anymore. You know, sure, the three home nations are still getting some funding. Wales is slightly different, but from their home nation sports councils. Uh, but it's not that much in relative terms. So there, and there's no sponsorship coming in, no marketing money, no no, no external investment. So, in this cl- in this climate where there will be less and less of that public funding available, there needs to be economies of scale found. There needs to be ways that the three home nations and the central federation work more closely together. You need to find ways, ultimately, to save costs at, at, in the central bit, the bit you know that that. that isn't at the front line so that you can put more money into developing grassroots to to developing coaches to developing players because that's really what matters at the end of the day i mean it's nice to say that someone sits in an office in manchester earning sixty thousand a year and, and can write a press release but that that doesn't really make that that acute difference on the ground and i think if you know if we are looking at how this sport best presents itself and organizes itself going forward what it must do is 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 work very closely together and, and and avoid that duplication that drives up costs. In hindsight, do you think that it was a bad decision um, for the BBF to become the official sort of uh, FIBA member? You know, we know that FIBA FIBA were the ones that were very much pushing for it. Um, but do you think that you know if if like if knowing what you know now and seeing how kind of it's playing out, uh, if you had been in 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 charge of making that decision would you have kept them as home nations or would you still have tried to do the unification thing no for me it makes no sense to have three home nations as members of FIBA once we went to a Great Britain team for me you know they just it was a no-brainer that there didn't need to be three members and I think the idea of pushing everyone to work together is it remains as fundamentally sound now as it did back in in sort of 20 2010 2011 when FIBA were really pushing for this but I think what you still have is is three home nations operating far too independently of one another, of the BBF, 
at a time when really at, at a strategic level basketball has moved to a britain wide system we have the top two leagues the bbl and the wbbl they run across the three home nations you have the great britain teams again run across three home nations you know, to say that further down the chain that they should operate completely independently of one another with very, at times, very minimal linking is just absolutely crazy. So I think, you no, know, I, 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 the aspiration there that, and I, I get, obviously, I don't agree on a general basis with, with a lot that FIBA do. But on this case, I think they were right, because I think it, what it was pushing for was for people to have that sort of one voice and one focus. But it hasn't quite worked out that way in practice. And that's, I think, is something that internally that has to be dealt with still. The other thing that, that comes up a lot, um, especially amongst the fan base, is the kind of lack of funding, um, which, of course, you know, is, is, a, is a topic that uh, is, is a problem at the moment. Um, but, of course, in around 2012, uh, you know, GB had a whole wealth of money. Um, and yet things didn't quite happen uh, or work out as many expected them to. Um, kind of how would you look back on that period uh, from when um, sort of British performance basketball was first formed, you know, them getting, you know, I think it was up to 14 million now over the course of, uh, over the course of six, seven, eight years. Um, and then, you know, London 2012 Olympics, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you, as with, with many of us, saw it as a great opportunity um, for the sport and it didn't quite become the catalyst that many expected it to be um well why do you think that was kind of yeah what's your assessment of that that entire uh, sort of period era um so to speak waste of money and that's that's what it comes down to we you know, we were awash with cash at that point i mean the, the people who are involved in, in in british basketball that were federation home nations at that point you, you can't fathom now how much they had to play with and and what they could do then and i I recall going to, to All Star in Orlando. I think it was 20, 2011 or twenty twelve. But you know, being on a flight where half of the British basketball sort of management team were setting up in business class, and they were going there for a day of meetings with Chris Finch, who was the coach at the time, who was going to be at the All Star game, just to discuss something that you think he thought, well, for the cost that this is brought up, I would sit and do this on a Skype call and spend the money elsewhere. Now, they might make the argument if you, in retrospect, they had to spend that cash. They couldn't really stash it away. But I think to an extent, what they were very guilty of was having so much money that they just spent it on superficial stuff rather than thinking, well, we might not have this forever. These, this is a, a halison day. I think we all would have thought this, this it was never going to get any better than this. So what can we do to be much more long term? Now, the organization at that point was primarily called British Performance Basketball. And I think that was the that was the issue. It was very much focused just on performance. It didn't have as much of a strategic vision as the BBF have now. And I think that's why the opportunities were lost. It wasn't they didn't put in a long term place plan in place really more for grassroots. They didn't use it as a as an opportunity to say, well, how can we invest in growing the sport maybe from a commercial point of view? Um, it just, to me, it felt like there's this giant pot of cash that was thrown up in the air and then burnt as it came down. And at the end of it, when, when the Olympics were finished, yes, we all enjoyed it and it was you know, it was fantastic to see. But it really, there was there was nothing left. Everything had gone. The people all left, and it, it's it's it just the, the the chance that was had there to to do something was huge and for various reasons. It, it was never taken and we're still suffering from that. Do you think one of the reasons that that um, 
that was able to happen was because of the lack of media accountability. Like, if it had been any other sport, do you think that um, that that would have been able to happen? Uh, yeah, I don't. Th- I don't think that it wasn't held to account. I mean, I, I mean, I like to think there was times when I flagged up things I and mean, other people did too. So I'm not sure it was accountability. I think it was, from a media point of view, every sport was doing that. And it, of course, everyone was caught up in the sort of feel-good factor of the Olympics for one. And then there were so many sports that were building themselves up there and doing things and trying to make it. So there was such a huge story that I suppose generally it got lost that that money across all sports. It says basketball was not the only people doing this, but money was frittered away from that giant Olympic pot. I, I think it was more a case that there wasn't a structure in place to kind of internally to ask the tough questions, to, to say, well, could we could we spend this money somewhere else? Could you know? Could we share this more more broadly? There, uh, I understand why the people involved did what they do. They were trying to get results. They were spending the money you know, to to achieve results at the Olympics. Uh, we did relatively well in our performances there. So I suppose to an extent they could probably say yes, it worked in a way. That was just the nature of of how UK sport was set you know set up in terms of you know how they what they wanted out of that money that they were spending. But you just think it was such a shame that that there was so much investment in national lottery money that was out there at the time. And it just didn't really build any kind of long-term legacy. Do you think the respective boards uh, are doing a better job now of holding um, different bodies to account? Um, yes and no. I think they're certainly more engaged. You know, this, you know, for for all this, the shortcomings of, that we've seen in recent weeks, the three home nations are very much engaged in the bbf you know scotland used to be the problem child they're probably more enthusiastic than anyone else england at a board level by and large my reading is that they're still very much behind the bbf so i think yes people people are 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 looking at it and seeing what they can do the thing is the next stage is 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 control and where you can you move control to the bbf can you let them take on the role that they're supposed to do which is 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 strategically and operationally running British basketball and and pulling things together and looking at what the home nations are doing and say, look, I know it's going to be hard for you, but we want you to give up doing this because we feel it's better and cheaper and more effective to do this across three home countries from one point rather than having three points and three different people doing it. And I think that's that's the next challenge for them. And, and Tough questions need to be asked, particularly in, in, in the wake of the latest crisis. They can't keep moving every single year from crisis to crisis. They need to find, as we said, there's economies of scale, but they need to find better ways to work together. And I think it's it's not incumbent in the three home nations who really have to give up some power to maybe empower the BBF to, to do bigger and better things. If you were to um, have to choose between... Uh, national team success or professional league success uh, in terms of the thing being having the most potential of changing the game here long term um, which do you think is more important? I think they're equally important I don't think you can divide the two one begats the other if you have a good league we will bring through better players who will help the national team if the national team is doing well it will be more prominent and people, more people will watch the BBL and it will grow go to you know even bigger itself i think one thing that that is the driver is that the the health of the game will be judged by the great britain teams 
I mean, you know, the BBL can will always bring in players from outside. Our best players, by and large, they certainly in the foreseeable future will always go abroad. But I think the barometer for how well we're doing will be how good our national teams are. And that also, that doesn't even just go back to the players that we're bringing in. It's also to do with you know, the players that are around and want to play for those national teams. I think if you look at the people who aren't playing for Great Britain, just from the men's level, Joel Freeland, Lowell Deng, yeah, there there are people out there who haven't been managed particularly well, and you know, I've spent a lot of time covering the Spanish national team and the French national team over the over the past decade, and I, I see the the system they have in place there to make those players feel valued, to make them buy into the system from a very early age, that they have an ownership of those national team programs that our players have never had. You know, we we've. There was prior to the Olympics, there was a, a, a Canadian, I believe, by the name of Ron Boutola, who, who managed the players and who talked to them and you know, just kept them in touch, kept them involved. And, uh, you know, you know, not just one week a year, not just the week before they were due to sign up for training camp, but all year round. And once he left, there was no one there managing that role and it's disappeared. And, you do, you know, if you talk to players, they don't feel that they're wanted. They get... They get, they've, they've, there's been cases where they've been annoyed because they, they haven't heard from anyone until that point where the email comes, particularly when we just had summer basketball, to go, are, are you coming to training camp? And they go, well, we haven't heard from you for six months. So it felt like a one-way relationship there. And I think, you know, once we have players wanting to be there, once they see this as something that's really positive for their careers, and once we get results and once everyone's coming on board, and then we have good players coming through, yeah, I think if if that happens, then we'll say that our game's in a good place. If the national teams aren't working that well, then we have, then again we have structural issues that have to be addressed. The other thing that the national teams uh, seem to have struggled with over the years is really building up a, a solid fan base. You know, especially when you consider um, that you know what the BBL is doing with their finals events at the moment and how many. Uh, fans we have across the entire, entirety of the UK that go to BBL games every season, um, but we're still struggling to to get like a, a big following of the of the GB teams. Uh, what's your perspective on that? Why do you think it's uh, why do you think they've struggled to kind of build a committed fan base over the years? I think it's a cultural thing. These things you know, take time. People build an investment, and it's a generational thing. So I don't. I don't necessarily think that it's it's something that's that's structurally wrong with it. It just takes time. I think one of the faults they had, and maybe this is the prism from where I live, is that you know, they played games in London exclusively for a few years, where there isn't really a culture of going to watch basketball. Certainly, there's a massive culture of playing it and, yeah. and enjoying the sport. But London's a difficult market to sell into, as the Lions have found, is that you know, you're a very small speck on a very, very large ocean there. And to get in, to create any noise and get people who aren't accustomed to playing or watching basketball to, to, to come and support your team is very difficult. And I think that was very short sighted of them. And a lot of it from the men's point of view was driven by the, the former coach, Joe Pronti, who liked that space and wanted the team to play there. And they went along with that instead of standing up to him and going, no, we're going to take it to Newcastle or to Leicester or to Glasgow or places where culturally people will come and watch teams and get behind them. And, you know, I was at the GB Greece game in Leicester um, not that long ago and it was a packed house and people were really enthused about it and were very vociferous in their support and you know the greek fans came too and it you know felt like a proper game it was a really you know proper international clash where it meant something and there was passion involved in it and 
yeah, that that's what you need to do and i think we'll see the same next summer with the two games at, at the emirates for the gb men and i think the same for the women when they're on the road as well and i think you i think you need to take the game where the fans are you can't necessarily expect the fans to go where the team are because you know costs and, and, and cultural issues there are involved in it so yeah i i think there is a pocket of support for gb i, I just think finding that and getting them to a game it depends on where you go it was uh, the new FIBA qualification windows are one of the reasons that uh, one of the one of the justifications for for doing it and switching it up was so that um, home fans get more more games um, in their country. Um, kind of, what's your take on the on the new uh, qualifying windows? What do you think of them? Do you think it's a good move from FIBA? Um, do you think it benefits GB in any way? Kind of, what's your overall assessment? I mean, as a as a as a concept, it's brilliant. As an execution, it's shambolic, and. Yeah, I remember at the time when it was announced, you know, talking to people at FIBA, and the first question I asked, well, what about the NBA players? And they were like, oh, they're not going to come and speak to, I spoke to the NBA. And and obviously they said, even at that time, we're not going to be involved in this. And yeah, I, I think if you look at international sport, it should be the pinnacle. It should be the very best of the best. And I, I understand entirely what FIBA were trying to do with having games at home for allowing federations to generate money from mean, more meaningful games at home. The likes of like Spain and the US barely were playing a competitive game ever in their home country. So from, a, from an idea and a concept point of view, fine. But you know, FIBA is supposed to you know, be the, the guardians of basketball. For being, you know, the the people that sort of think things through and, and develop for the 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 benefit of the sport, and you know, if, for a federation that claims to be, you know, on the ball, if you pardon the pun, you know, to not sort of think this through to the end process and go, well, fans don't like the fact that they can't watch their best players in action. The players, many of whom I've spoken to in recent months, particularly in the NBA, are really unhappy that they're not able to play for their national teams. So from from a, an execution point of view, it's been a complete disaster. And the value of international basketball has been dragged down. Now, from a GP point of view, it's actually a benefit because we don't have any NBA players at the minute. If we, if we assume that Lowell Deng is written off and, and, and gone, it, it's not really harming us. For us, it's probably a positive. But for basketball as a whole on a global basis, it's, it's an absolute mess. And I, I really hope that post the 2021 World Cup that they rethink and scrap this and find a new system. The other thing you've been, uh, I don't want to spend ages on this, but the other thing you've been covering in detail is kind of the, the battle between uh, EuroLeague and FIBA. Um, you know, over the last, how long, however long, last year or two or so, like kind of what's your, <laughs> what's your assessment of that situation? and How do you see that panning out? I mean, it's it's an utter mess, and uh, you know I've been critical of both sides on this, and I think you know you you look at what FIBA put together, and for sure they they will always say that Euroleague signed up for this, or they've put this out there for you know five years ago, and this has always been on the table. But again, what this wasn't thought thought through, and it, it, clubs are the people who play the player salaries on a week to week basis. They're the ones who suffer if they got injured when they're in international duty. You know, they're they're the ones who they're ultimately pay the bills and that's what it's about for for the players now there needs to be a compromise but where that compromise comes just now i don't know and you know fiba in its current direction is it is so financially focused it's it's all about its own power you set up the champions league which you know I, my understanding is it's 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 losing money hand over fist and it, it's not worked. It's it's a gamble that they they took. They thought they could go head to head with Euroleague. It's it, it's they're they're not going to win this battle. The clubs have stood firm. The players are staying there. They still have the better product. And in the middle of it, you have players not being able to play for their national teams again. They're not happy about that. So where's the resentment going? It's going towards FIBA. And 
ultimately, if you're acting in the best interest of the game, you change it. But my fear is that you have a well-governing body that's so caught up in its own sense of importance, of its own sense of holding on to its power, gaining more power, that they're going to keep digging in. And and it, it is a conflict at the moment that is doing basketball no good whatsoever. So I'm aware, aware of time here, um, so I've got a few more questions I want to fire at you. Uh, jumping back a little bit, because uh, I completely missed this uh, from my notes. Um, but I always remember when I first uh, kind of got into covering British basketball, um, I was always just dumbfounded that uh, you would just have all this information all the time. Like, <laughs> there would be no press release, no announcement, uh, and then there you were like a day, two days before it was announced with, with you know, an exclusive and whatever. So I'm pretty sure that I actually messaged you at, at some point being like, how do you, how do, you do that? <laughs> Um, how you know? How have you gone about building your network over the years? Uh, how does a journalist uh, that's trying to build a reputation in the space um, go about uh, you know getting sources so they can get exclusive stories and become a kind of um, legitimate news source? I just spend a lot of time speaking to people uh, and keeping in touch with people, or texting people, or direct messaging people, or whatever. I mean, it's it's about building those relationships and maintaining those relationships. And yeah, you know, I've been ingrained in this for a long time, so it, there's always a constant evolution. But I think I often get asked, and you, you said you asked the question at some point. Other people have asked me, you know, how do you how do you go about this process? It's about being there and, and talking to people. And yeah, you know, I, I often get emails from from young journalism graduates or people who are studying it or want to get into it and talk, well, how, you know, how can I end up covering the NBA? Is you know, it's like, well, start covering your local team, you know, speak to, speak to the people there, get a feel for what they're thinking. And I'm not, you know, it's not just about what, what they say on the record or what you publish as, as a quote. It's about understanding from the background to it. You know, you know, what you might read on MVP or elsewhere or something I've written is, is generally only a small fraction of, of, what I actually know, and that's that's not to say that things are concealed, but it's it's about building an understanding there behind people and getting people to to kind of trust you with information and also sharing information. Some you know, the, you know part of what I do is is brokering that in a way that I you know I might be able to help someone on a given day and they can help me tomorrow. So, um, but I think I I hope what people do think is recognize that I actually really care about this board. I, you know, I'd like it to be better. I'd like it to be out there. And I, you know, I'd like some of the really good stories to, that, that are available to be told. And I think, you know, hopefully um, people appreciate that, that that's what I'm doing. So to ask you the question that's kind of asked all the time, um, you know, uh, especially when foreign journalists come over and they're kind of like, oh, well, you know, why, why isn't British basketball bigger? Like, why, why hasn't it, um, you know, done all the things that people think it could do? Why hasn't it reached its potential? You know, you've spoken about uh, the unifying voice. Do you think that is the sole thing? Um, or would you talk about other things like, you know, the facilities, the coaching, um, the, the player development pathway? Uh, yeah, what kind of, yeah, what's your assessment of, of why British basketball isn't bigger than it is? I think you've just named everything. I mean, yeah. it's. I think you think there, the list is as you know, as as long as uh, Joel Freeland's arms. Yeah, you know, it's. It, there are so many factors involved in this, and some of it is not British basketball's fault necessarily. You look at facilities in this country. You know, the the cost of it, the availability is chronic compared to other countries in in Western Europe. You know, the the funding that's available to basketball compared to other sports is, is disgraceful governments have not supported a sport that that has a lot of people playing uh you know, you look at the player pathways yes we could do a much better job on that I, th- I think we're getting better at it but again that often that comes down to cash as well so 
yes, there's the political side and the government side of it, and that is very important. But I think you know there are there are so many things that are not quite there in basketball in this country, and despite the very good intentions and the good work of so many people involved, you know, how you bring that together and how you develop the sport is always going to be a challenge. Now it's up to. I think to people to, to say, well, you know, we've had so many years of this. We've had decade after decade where we've not managed to realize this potential. And, you know, we, we're getting small nuggets of good things stepping forward. Look at Leicester's new arena, Newcastle's new arena that's coming forward. We, you know, those small positives that are that are happening, you know, grassroots development that's that, that's been done in certain places, Brixton's program, you know, the, the nuggets that of, of, of hope that are there. But we need to take that, those and say well we need more of this we need to fight for our space we need to despite the challenges are there make things happen because if, if you're just accepting that you're going to be a fringe and a minority sport that isn't really doing much well then you might as well give up removing uh the sort of the media aspect of it your job side of things um What's the most memorable moment for you of all your years uh, following British basketball, whether it be you know, a GB game or a BBL game? Is there sort of one particular legendary moment that kind of stands out? Oh, that, that's, that's an incredibly tough question. I think, I think you know, the, the Sheffield-Manchester game that, where the title was on the line and it was a packed house. I think you know, that for me, although that era was slightly fake, in a way, if we to use a Trumpian term, um, I think that was kind of extraordinary that that what happened then, and you had a game that was you know on TV, and there was such a buzz about it, and you had great players, I mean amazing players, involved in that, and the drama of it, and people were watching it. It was a packed house, and it just felt huge, and that was just fabulous. And you know, I think you know that's, I guess that's kind of what you want British basketball to to get even close to now that, that it comes back towards that again. And, you know, you, you talk about things like the Olympics and, you know, the, the achievement of seeing British teams competing on that stage there. And that, that one win that the GB man had against China you know, at London 2012, you know, it was, a, it was amazing to see that. And I, that actually happened to be a day that I was, I was on duty somewhere else so I, on the Olympic park. Uh, but I, I saw what the score was. I raced back cause I didn't want to miss seeing, an historic win, and you know, and I got there for the second half to, to see it sort of closed off. And you know, again, there's been lots of brilliant stuff to see over over the, the time I've been involved in the sport, and there's still is brilliant stuff to see even uh, you know, on a weekly basis in some small ways. But you know, what we what you really want is a sport that that, that people see those for themselves, that more people see it and more people appreciate it. And you know, the, the sport kind of, I think sometimes the sport has a, has a tendency to talk itself to talk itself down. You know, there are great there are things happening and there are great things to see. You know, what, what it needs we need to do is see those go out there to more people. Who's been your favourite um, British basketball player to watch uh, and cover over the years? Um, I, I mean, there's been so many and there's guys that are, you know, who's t- who have given me their time that, I, you know, that I, I've really appreciated, you know, going way back, the Peter Scantlebys of this world, who were, who were great when I was first starting out, Paul James when he was a player as well. And into the modern era, the likes of Andy Betts, who I always really enjoyed talking to, um, Robert Archibald, who obviously I knew from when he was a, was a teenager, who, who was always great fun. And I guess this was... As people know, Kieran Achara uh, is someone that I've known since he was a teenager. I'd you know, say they were you know, on the invite list for each other's weddings, and um, he's someone that I've very admired. And uh, you know, because he, 
I've seen that pathway, and that is, you know, we talk about the pathway in British basketball, and, and it hurts. It's not always perfect. You know, you've seen someone who's worked very hard to develop their skills right back to when he was a, a you know a young player at Falkirk Fury, you know, going to the states and, and going and going to different European countries, not being afraid to try new things, and now coming back captaining his country and being a you know an incredibly good ambassador for the sport, and that's. I think more of what what needs to be out there is you know if you look at the Great Britain team at the minute, even if you take the squad that played against Greece, there are twelve great ambassadors, twelve people that have, most of whom have come through the British system, and the same with the women's team as well. You know, they are people who have fought and worked very hard to make the most of their talent and to get out there. And you know, these are brilliant role models. And you know, I I, I don't follow football particularly closely, but I don't always get the sense that that footballers are the great greatest role models out there. Our our guys and girls generally, as a rule, have have been terrific role models, and uh, you know I'd passionately love to see more people out there understanding what they do and 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 getting to know them at, you know, from from a sort of media basis, from you know from a personal basis because they bring so much to our sport. So two more questions for you. What the first one being. Um... If uh, you were to give any advice, I mean, you kind of brushed upon it earlier, but if you were to give any advice to a, you know, a young budding sports journalist who wants to get into covering British basketball and wants to carve out a career for themselves in it, um, what would you say to them? Stay out. There's no work involved. You don't need to come here and find something else to do. No, I kid you. Um, I think to an extent, everyone wants to cover the NBA. And I've been, I've been fortunate enough to, to cover the NBA quite a lot myself and cover, you know, the big world cup you know world cup finals and euro baskets and people kind of forget sometimes you need to get there and it's getting that experience that that of of small things and you know people might think oh i don't want to cover worthing thunder i say that just because john holmes my good friend will listen to this and <laughs> um, I, I don't want to cover you know a, a, a team in the the, the WBBL. I don't want to go to Sheffield Hatters. Yeah, you know, go and cover that. Get speak to them. Get a sense of how they go about their process of their game. How the players are involved. What their their backstories are. You know, get get to feel of you know what a little bit about the politics within their camp is or whatever level that they're playing at. You know, get get a sense of that because that's that's important. I also say is you know again the question I, I asked is I want to be a basketball journalist. No one wants you. You want to get experience of lots of things. You know, I always say to people be be a more generalist. Try actually going outside sport. I used to do a lot of business journalism. You know, I did. I worked for a while for the NFL and PR. You know, having those other range of experiences is so much better than being you know very narrow in what you do because it's, you know, this is a tough market. The media is a very tough gig right now. The you know, budgets are dropping every single month. So you want to have many, many strings to your bow. I am very lucky that I get to spend a good chunk of my time doing basketball and that I get I get paid to do it and I get to, to pay to do really interesting roles and, and go to see interesting things. But those opportunities are few and far between. And the more strings to your bow that you can have, the more you know experience that you can gain and the, the broader range of skills you can develop, particularly not just in writing, but in, you know, radio and audio and video etc then the more chance you have of earning a living at this and then finally um if i run a club and i want to ensure that uh you know i'm accommodating to media and maximizing my chances of getting coverage um what are the fundamental things that i should be focusing on getting right i think it's accessibility i think it's just just that openness of of yeah here's my players if you want to come here you can come through our doors and talk to anyone you want to, you know, almost any time that you, that, that, that you wish to. That's that's a fundamental start. You know, that's that should be a no-brainer. 
But I think it's actually just, you know, clubs need to do a better job, whether it's a local level or, or national level of actually going, well, actually, we think this is interesting. Who can we find to talk about this? No, it might be just that it's getting someone to, to do something on a, on a, on a, a blog or their own website it might be that they go to the local paper it might be that they push it out further than that but it's it's about having you know knowing what your good stories are you know knowing what's interesting about your team what what makes you unique what makes you different you know even if it's a small thing you know of of, of what a player's done or what what they think or sort of something that's happened in their life you know those Things are not automatically available. I mean, you know, I, I'm constantly surprised sometimes. Look at the magnificent piece that was written by Fab or by Fab Flanoy in the New York Times recently. One of the best things I've I've read about British basketball in years, and um, I almost felt embarrassed when I read it because I've 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 spoken to Fab many times and I've never told as much of his story as, as someone did. Admittedly, who had four days to spend with them in Newcastle. Um, and admittedly, you know, Dave Forrester, the assistant coach at Newcastle, who lives right downstairs, told me there was few things in the article that he, even he didn't know about. And he's pretty close friends with Fab. So, um, you know, th- the fact is that clubs don't have PR people at large to push these stories out. But you need to, if you want to attract more people into the sport, you can use the media. It's a way to build basketball. And on a national basis, we talk about building the narrative of, of basketball. All those little things add up. All those little tiny stories and those good pieces of news and those interesting people pieces of news help to create the impression that basketball is bigger, that it's worth supporting, that it's worth following, that it's worth investing time and energy and emotional passion into it. And I think the more that, that sport can do that from top to bottom in this country, then the better off British basketball can be. I think that is a perfect place to leave it. Thank you so much, Mark, for taking the time. It's much appreciated. Um, it was Absolutely awesome to hear your insights over the years. Thank you. Pleasure, Sam, and keep up your own good work and uh, come back to this country soon. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.